The continuous showdown returns to Capitol Hill this week. Congress returns to session just days before the expected White House release of its 2024 budget request. For the outlook, here's WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And that budget is due now, I guess, on time. It's considered March 9th. A month late is now on time. (laughs) But that's the White House, not Congress. (laughs) But that will start to really inform the talk, won't it? It will. The budget will come before a divided Congress now, of course. So while it's something of a wish list every year when the White House releases it, it is that starting point for what will be months of battling over spending priorities. And there's been little argument over federal pay raises for uh, feds over the last few years with the democratically controlled House and Senate. But this is going to be different. Some Democrats, including Virginia, Virginia's Jerry Connolly are seeking that pay raise of as much as 8.7 percent. But the Biden administration has generally followed the federal pay formula over the last few years, so it's likely to come in around 5.2 percent. Now, previous pay raises in recent years essentially took place by default since most Democrats didn't advocate a specific number other than people in the Virginia and Maryland delegations around the Washington area. But House Republicans are likely to push back on a pay raise, and that could lead to a debate over a specific number. Also, Also, GOP House leaders are likely to press to require feds to require more payments toward their retirement. They could also push for a reduction in the federal share of premiums. So we could get a hint of all of this to come when the House Budget Committee starts to put together general plans for their appropriation bills. Yes, old ideas about the contributions to retirement that comes and goes periodically. But there are Republican co-sponsors, I believe, of that 8.7 percent pay raise bill. Yes, there are some. So there is, you know, some support. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, you have some people that will go along with it. And then you have the hard right of the GOP in the House, which is really pushing back and wants to make a statement on a lot of these issues. You know, a lot of them, as you're well aware, criticize the federal government as club fed, and they want to pull back on funding for various federal agencies. And of course, that will all roll into the whole debate related to the debt ceiling. So I think we're going to see, again, this ebb and flow of arguments over the debt ceiling ceiling and whether House Republicans are going to get cuts in spending plans to go along with raising the debt ceiling. I guess Club Fed is like Club Med with frumpy clothes. (laughs) Exactly. And some hearings coming up this week. Veterans Affairs is having some issues on hiring and vetting employees, and they've just been struggling with filling their ranks out. And this is going to come up. Yes, the House Veterans Affairs Committee holds a hearing on Tuesday. And this comes after, as you mentioned, this hiring of new workers as the VA tries to keep up with the number of increasing number of patients. The VA is trying to make progress in hiring. And a top VA official said last week that the Veterans Health Administration has already hired more than 18,000 new employees in this fiscal year. And that brings the total number of employees to the VHA to nearly 390,000. The VHA has a goal of a 3% increase in staffing by the end of this fiscal year. They expect to meet that goal. They're planning to hire as many as 50,000 employees by the end of this fiscal year. Also, a good bit of news for the Veterans Administration, there's been a lower attrition rate, so they are getting fewer employees that they have to replace. Obviously, that's a big issue at many of the agencies across the federal government. Right. And that PACT Act, I think, put a big workload on them, more patients and more people applying for benefits. And so I think that might be part of the factor there. Right. And then there's also quality of life in the military to, you know, back up the life cycle a notch. 
That hearing is also coming up in appropriations. Yes, this is a House subcommittee of appropriations, and literally the hearing is called Quality of Life in the Military. That, again, will be on Tuesday. Lawmakers hearing from representatives of all the armed services. This is an issue that's been getting a lot of attention from the armed services committees as well. There's been a lot of complaints about military housing, the quality of the housing, the accessibility, and the need to increase pay for junior enlisted service members. Many young military families have had a hard time making ends meet with inflation being so high, just doing basic things like paying for groceries. There's also a new subcommittee of the House Armed Services Committee that's going to be led by Nebraska Republican Don Bacon, and it is going to specifically address these quality of life issues. Supporters say dealing with these issues is critical to recruitment and making sure there are adequate numbers of U.S. military personnel in the armed forces. Yes, uh, the Army has missed its recruiting goals, and they're working on a lot of fronts to try to upend that situation. Right. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller. He's Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And I wanted to ask you about the it was a flurry of news a couple of weeks ago with Maryland and Virginia, their congressional delegations vying for the new FBI headquarters. This is like 10, 15 years now. This has dragged on big interruption in the Trump administration era. So when is that going to all happen, and does Congress have any say, ultimately? Well, I know that this has been bouncing around for many years, and then, of course, it intensified under the Trump administration, and there was a back and forth about whether or not it would move from Pennsylvania Avenue to Maryland and Virginia. But now I think we are really getting to the nitty-gritty on this. It's the General Services Administration that, of course, is going to make this final decision. And I think the reason that we're seeing so much movement is because the GSA had to reach out to both the Maryland and Virginia congressional delegations. That's why in these past few weeks, you saw them fiercely going back and forth over the criteria for picking a new site outside of D.C. in the either Virginia or Maryland suburbs. The Virginia delegation wants it near Springfield. They argue that it's near Quantico and the FBI testing area there, and they just feel that there are a lot of other issues that uh, point to that, including transportation that make it a better site there. And of course, on the Maryland side, they say, no, that's not a good site. They want it in land Andover or Greenbelt. And interestingly, there are five criteria that are all going to be added up to 100 points for ranking the sites, and the GSA panel has to decide how they're all going to be meted out. One of them that's been receiving a lot of attention recently is one in connection with whether or not it's doing enough to help people in the area that are underserved. And this is one of the areas it's only going to get about 15 points in providing sustainability or livability of the communities around where this FBI headquarters would be based. Maryland says that things are getting shifted a little bit and that they felt that they had an advantage in Prince George's County over Virginia. Virginia says back and forth for the reasons I just mentioned, they feel that they have the best site. So I think to your original question, when is this all going to be finally decided? The GSA originally indicated that they were going to try to get it done by the end of the past fiscal year. That obviously didn't happen, but I do think they are going to get close closer to a final decision in the coming months, and we could see a final decision, which, of course, will come under challenges, but that could come later this year. I'm picturing Barbara Mikulski coming out of retirement and flying in there (laughs) and saying, guys, you know, this is where it's got to go. She would be in there for sure. And, of course, the GSA administrator is from Missouri, so she doesn't have a horse in the race. So that might mitigate for an objective decision. 
Interesting, though, does anyone raise the question of, you know, the community served criterion for the ranking that most of the employees will just move with the FBI that are already there? Right, exactly. That's a point that a lot of people are making. I mean, they're going to have to move. Now, the various congressional delegations point out that this will have a spinoff of a lot of other implications, obviously, related to transportation and other hiring and other businesses that may spin off with development and that type of thing. But other people say, well, you know, the FBI is fairly enclosed and it's not necessarily going to have the type of spinoff effect that many other developments might have. So it's an interesting back and forth. As you indicated, this has been going on for more than a decade, but I think we are finally getting down to the final point where we're going to hit the finish line on this. Well, if you want to see the spinoff effect, drive the dreary roads surrounding the new DHS headquarters. Oh, right. And if you can find anything that's pleasant and developed around there, let me know, because I'll go back and take (laughs) another look. And just real quickly, the show up act from legislation from the House Republicans, is that going anywhere? Well, you know, the bill would require the number of federal employees returning to their offices to get back to the level that they were before the pandemic in 2019. As you know, the House passed this legislation a few weeks ago, and Kentucky Congressman James Comer urged the Senate to quickly take up the bill, but it's opposed by many Democratic senators, and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has shown no indication he plans to bring it up anytime soon. So at this point, it's doubtful the legislation requiring federal workers to physically get back to their offices will be passed in the Senate. Advocates of telework for federal employees continue to say there can be a balance with feds working both at home and in the office. And, of course, the number of feds approved for telework in the past several years has really gone up, more than doubling from just under 500,000 a few years ago to now more than a million. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive's podcast edition wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, 
I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.